Father, you are a faithful God and you have done so much for us. Most of all, you've done so much for us in Christ and we're grateful for that. And then you've given us your word and you meet our needs. Your mercies are new every morning. And Father, we just want to pause for a moment and say thank you and acknowledge your great faithfulness. Fathers, we open our Bibles today. Teach us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And uh, as you reach for your Bibles, you might also want to grab your bulletin notes. Uh, We're getting pretty good at keeping those in there every week, and I trust you find those helpful. I was thinking about um, an incident that occurred in my life. I've shared this before. Um, When I was in high school, there was a girl that I used to keep my eye on. Uh, Her name was Tammy. She was captain of the cheerleading squad, and I doubt that she knew I even existed. But one morning in my history class, this is what I was thinking about that applies to our text. It really does. Um, (laughs) She leaned forward and she spoke to me, and she asked if I had an extra pencil she could borrow. Now, you need to understand, that's a... That's a really significant moment. (laughs) Because just think about it. Think about it. For her to speak to me, prove to me that she knew I existed. All right? So that was a good thing. And secondly, for her to ask to borrow a pencil from me meant that at some level she needed me in her life. All right? And so this is a very good thing. This is a very good thing. And of course, um, nothing was going to stop me from meeting this request, and I had a pretty nice pencil. I actually was a sharp pencil, and there, when everything was just great, I turned to hand her the pencil and drove it right into the skin of the palm of her hand, and the lead broke off in her skin. (laughs) And as we turn to Matthew chapter 16... We experience here one of those moments where everything seems like it is going so, so well. I mean, this is just a great way to start the day. And then all of a sudden, the wheels come off, and you can hardly imagine a worse scenario. And you think to yourself, a minute ago, everything was really good. But right now, nothing is good. And that's exactly the mindset that we experience in our three-verse text today. It's the Apostle Peter. He's having another encounter with Christ. He has just experienced, perhaps, the greatest pinnacle moment of his life, where the Lord has looked at him and said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I'm going to give you the keys you heard Pastor Shupi last week, you know that he wasn't the first pope. But Peter and the disciples were mandated by Christ with great spiritual authority that the very things that they would speak on earth that were bound, binding, they would have a spiritual authority on earth that would be reinforced with spiritual authority in heaven, that, this, that Christ was going to build his church, he was going to build his church on the apostles, on their teaching, on the, on the mandate of the gospel, 
and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And after all, Peter, who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. You're the man. The only way you could know this is that my Father in heaven revealed it to you. You're great, Peter. At least that's what Peter's hearing. I mean, Peter has been commended by the living Christ right there face to face. And then this happens. Matthew chapter 16, and we have just three verses we're going to bite off today. Verse 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, notice the language here, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. I mean, imagine this. This is the living Christ. This is the one who spoke the world into existence. This is the one who tells the sea to be still in the middle of a terrible storm. This is the one who can raise the dead. And I think Peter's feeling very good about himself right here. He's been speaking strongly. He's been affirmed. And he hears Jesus say, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer thing, many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be killed. I think that at that moment, Peter's hearing stopped. And he didn't catch the resurrection part. And Peter took him aside. And he, Jesus, Jesus, we have to talk. I mean, this is what he's thinking, right? Jesus, there's something you don't understand. <laughs> and this is, it's ludicrous. Jesus, come here. I have something I need to tell you. And he turns his finger from calling Jesus aside to pointing at him. And he said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. At least he's thinking, as long as I'm around. But he turned, Jesus did, in verse 23. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a powerful, profound, terrible moment in Peter's life. He thinks this is his greatest moment. He thinks things couldn't be going any better. And then he jams the pencil in his Lord's eye. Peter, you're Satan. Get out of my ear. It's a scary voice. I don't want to hear it. Be gone. You're a hindrance to me. No, Lord, I'm the one upon whom you're going to build your church. Wow. I just think this is, a, this is a very impacting passage. And there's a message here for us. The first thing I want you to see, and if you're filling in your notes, we see the first part of our story breaks down. Verse 21, it begins with Jesus speaking. Jesus speaks. And I want you to notice that he speaks very specifically. He speaks very specifically. I want you to notice as we look at 21, it's from that time, and that was the time of affirming the disciples upon whom he would build his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. They had affirmed him as Messiah. Okay? From that time on, Jesus now begins to show them even more specifically. Now remember, we're two and a half years into the Lord's earthly ministry. There's six months left. And so our Lord is going to be, He's getting down into the neck of the funnel. There's no time to waste. And He's pouring very specific information into the disciples. And He speaks very specifically. What does He say? First of all, notice He speaks very specifically about the place. Number one, the place. 
From time, this is not in your notes, you have to add it. From this, that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. There's the place. I am going to Jerusalem. I already emphasized the word that he said, I must go. Listen, not, not just any city. This is a very specific place. This is the epicenter of the religious religion of the day, of the, of the worship of the day. In the land of Israel, this is where it's going to happen. It's been prophesied. It's going to happen. The second thing I want you to see is he talks about the pain. Going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. It's going to be painful. I'm telling you guys. And their ears are perking up. What's he talking about? We're going to Jerusalem and we're going to suffer. And he's even going to, number three, list the perpetrators, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Okay, we know those guys. We've been button heads with them all along. And we're going to suffer many things from them. And then the final thing he says, he's going to talk, number four, about the process. I am going to be killed. And that's when I think everything went haywire. And the screen just must have fuzzed over. And Peter's mind just said, must have been the world. What are you talking about? Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that our Lord had dropped clues of this, right? He has mentioned... And in parallel passages in other Gospels, as well as in Matthew already, he has dropped some clues, hasn't he? Uh, For example, in chapter 12, uh, an example of this would be um, that they wanted a sign from Jesus, right? Give us a sign. Tell us if you're the Messiah. He said, I'll give you a sign. Remember what the sign was? The sign was the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights, but then he will rise again. And so he's giving, he has given these veiled clues. He's talked to them about the fact that they could tear down the temple, or he will talk about the fact, tear down the temple, and in three days I'll build it back up again. And they're saying, you got to be kidding me. It took, you know, I forget how long it took, 40 years or 400 years, dozens of years to build the temple. It wasn't a quick project. And you're going to tear it down and build it in three days. Always talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he's very specific here now. Very open, very pointedly. I'm going to tell you the place, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you the people. I'm going to tell you that it's going to be painful. I'm going to tell you the perps, the perpetrators that are going to put this on us. This is who it is. This is what's going to happen. And the process is, I'm going to be killed, but then I'm going to rise again. And I think at that point, they must have blanked out. So we see immediately that Peter reacts. Of course Peter reacts. And he reacts very emotionally. Very emotionally. Look what he says. And I, I, I maybe should have had a point in there that he reacts very arrogantly or foolishly. I don't know. I think it was spontaneous. Peter was a reactor, right? We know that about him. We know that he's been the spokesperson for the disciples. He's big, he's strong, he's tough, he's quick, he's intuitive, he's a natural leader. And he says, Jesus, wait, come here, come here. And the only redeeming thing about the whole thing is that evidently all the other disciples didn't hear this because it would have been so emasculating. I mean, Jesus, come here, come here. Lord, can you see Peter kind of leaning in? Lord. Lord, this is not going to happen only over my dead body. And you know, Peter, to his credit, he kind of lived that out, didn't he? Remember in the garden on the night of the betrayal? Who is it that whips out their little sword? A fisherman named Peter starts flailing his sword around and he cuts off the servant Caiaphas' ear, right? And 
And he was going to try to defend his Lord even to the death. But then a little girl speaks up at him and says, weren't you one of those who was with Jesus? And he swears an oath on his mommy's grave and says, no, I wasn't. It's amazing these ups and downs of Peter's life. Everything's going so well. And then all of a sudden it's the worst moment of his life. You know, I couldn't help but think. Peter wasn't that old when he died. He was martyred. And when you read First and Second Peter, you just love Peter. I mean, he becomes such a mature, godly guy, the way he writes. And, and, but in later years after this, don't you think it was something that his mind must have gone to? So remember the time, remember the time when I told Jesus to come here. And I told Jesus, this isn't going to happen. And then Peter's the one who writes about his great salvation. It's incredible. How could that be? It's unbelievable. Well, why does Peter respond like this? He responds so emotionally. Why does Peter respond like this? Well, the first thing I would suggest is, is limited information. Limited information. And I think for one thing, what I, what I suggested is not in the text. We always have to be careful of what we suggest that's not in the book. But... I just believe that Peter heard the elders and the priests and the Pharisees describe, they're going to kill me. And it's like Peter just went nuts in his brain and kicked into high gear. And he, he missed the part about the resurrection. So I think, first of all, he's operating on limited information. He doesn't get the resurrection. We know that. That is documented further in the story. In later chapters even. The disciples did not get the resurrection until after it happened. And then it all came together with complete force and clarity. But secondly, we have to have a little bit of uh, forgiveness here, I think. Or patience with Peter. Because we forget that we've got the book. We've read the story. We know how it ends, right? And Peter is living it out. He doesn't know the end of the story. Now, I referenced that we've been at Sunset Beach, North Carolina. We love it down there. It's a beautiful home that we stay at. And one of the things I love about being at the beach, it's the one week out of the year that I uh, like to read storybooks. You know, I have to read thick books with small print all year long just to be ready on Sunday mornings. And so when I go down there, I, I don't read commentaries too much except when I have to preach on the morning that I get back. So I did. But I go down to the secondhand store and I pay a buck for a Grisham novel and I read a Grisham novel every year at Sunset Beach. And then this year I had another book that I was reading and it was Killing Patton, General Patton by O'Reilly. Um, I forget his first, what's his name? Bill O'Reilly. And uh, it's a really good read. It's interesting. And Jonathan, our son, wanted to go fishing. And so we went out on the pier and he was drowning some shrimp out there. And, and I didn't fish and I had Killing Patton with me. And I had just um, not read it yet, and I, of course, thumbed through, and I looked at the pictures, right? And then you know what I did? I read the last two chapters of the book. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's incredible. And I found out how it ended. And, you know, Peter couldn't do that. We can do that with the gospel. We can do that 
with God's word. We know, we have teacher after teacher after teacher who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has written insightfully and we know how the story ends. Peter doesn't know how it ends and he's just not getting it here. And so I think number one, our first bullet point there is limited information. The second thing is misguided anticipation. And what I mean by this is in a few weeks we're going to get to Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, we have that interesting occurrence where Jesus is walking down a road with his disciples. And remember, they're having a conversation about them among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they're not talking about a spiritual kingdom. And they begin to picture themselves in these roles in the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. And in fact, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, they get their mother, who's a relative of Jesus, to go talk to Jesus and say, Hey, when you set up your kingdom, would you let my boys sit at your right hand and your left hand? And what they're picturing are big silver platters overflowing with grapes and cantaloupe and stuff like that. You know, beautiful women fanning them while they eat grapes and act like they know a lot. And they're picturing the kingdom. They're picturing Jesus on the throne. And we're going to conquer and we're going to overthrow Rome. And it's going to be great. And we're going to be there. And so it's just misguided. That was not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about a spiritual kingdom. He was talking about something that was going to transform the world. But it wasn't going to happen the way they thought it was going to happen. And they just missed it. Third bullet point is, it's an inflated imagination. Inflated imagination I couldn't help when I read that to just kind of be Peter for a minute. Because I do the same thing. I I did it this week. Another thing I did at the beach that I don't do everywhere else. And and, and I was going to say everything that happens at the beach stays at the beach. But that's not. I don't do anything I couldn't tell you about. That's for sure. But I I watched a couple of old Jason Bourne movies. I never do that. I also watched an entire baseball game from beginning to end. I never do that either in my life. So I'm watching Jason Bourne. If you don't know Jason Bourne, don't worry. He's just a cool guy who's tough, and he's a CIA guy and stuff. And so I started pushing my son Jonathan around after I watched these movies. And I told him not to mess with me because I'm Jason Bourne. And I started pointing out stuff around the room that I could use to take him out if I wanted to. And I'm Jason Bourne. You see, I can imagine myself to be something that I'm not. Can you do that? Peter could do that. Lord, you don't understand. I'm the man. I'm Peter. I'm here. I got your back. It's going to happen. Don't worry. So he's just imagining himself. Peter, you do not know how out of control you really are. You think you're in control, but you're not. Finally, as we wrap up this little passage here, verse 23b, the second half, after Jesus says, be gone or get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Look what he says at the end of verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wasn't Peter viewing this from a human perspective? It was with human explanation that Peter's trying to put this all together. His perspective was all in the flesh. It was, it was human. Are we not vulnerable to that? At some of the most critical spiritual moments of our lives, we process humanly or fleshly. I think those are some reasons that we could suggest. doesn't say in the text, but just I think that's the mindset of Peter reacting very emotionally. We then see in verse 23 that Jesus responds, and he responds in a way that I don't think we expected. He responds very unexpectedly. 
very unexpectedly. Look at verse 23 again. Peter says in verse 22, he rebukes him. That's incredible. Rebuking the Lord Jesus. I can't get over that. Far be it from you, Lord. This is not going to happen. Not the way you said. Verse 23. But then Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. I cannot imagine that Jesus could say anything that would have, would have taken Peter by more surprise than that. I mean, if Jesus had walked up to Peter and just given him an elbow above the ear as hard as he could, I don't think it would have stunned him anymore. Turn, Peter, get behind me, Satan. There is a voice coming in my ear that is the voice of Satan. And it's a scary voice. I don't want to hear this voice. And so Jesus responds so very unexpectedly. And I have to ask the same question. Why does Jesus respond like that? That is a powerful response. It is such, a, in a way, a put-down response. That's what I meant by, at least Peter had called him aside. Imagine this in front of all of his, his buddies. You're the devil and get out of my life. Oh Lord, I'm the one you're going to build the whole church upon. Well, I think, first of all, it directly, what Peter says, directly contradicts the word of God. Why would Jesus look at Peter and respond like this? The living word of God has just spoken and said exactly how it's going to be. Jesus has just spoken. This is God in the flesh. This is the living word. He is the word. And the word speaks. And the word says, this is how it's going to happen. And Peter says, no, Lord, it's not going to happen like that. And so this is nothing other than a message that is absolutely contrary to the word of God. It is from the pit of hell. Jesus says, stop. It's contrary to the word of God. Not only that. It's contrary to the word of God in the fact that scripture has said that this is how it's going to happen. There are numerous examples of this. One you might jot down in your notes is Psalm 22. Psalm 22. You know Psalm 23, the psalm right before it that you never read. Psalm 22. It's a prophetic passage. It talks about the agony with which Christ would go to the cross. It talks about exactly how it's going to happen. Another familiar passage, more familiar, we referenced it at communion a couple weeks ago, is Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we are lost in the desert of sin. But He comes and it's by His stripes we're going to be healed. And the iniquity, the sin of the world is going to be laid upon Him. He's going to pay the price. Listen, really, the entire Old Testament, in a way, is a picture of what Christ would do. Why do you think there's so many dead animals in the Old Testament? If you don't know your Bible, what I'm talking about is all of the sacrificial animals. Lambs and calves and goats and pigeons. They were killing animals all the time. Why? Because they had ritualistic. In Judaism, the shedding of blood was demanded and required to show that the individual was sorry for their sin and something had to die to pay the price for the sin. That was nothing more than a picture of what would come in the New Testament when the spotless Lamb of God would carry the cross down the way of suffering and the Roman soldiers would nail Him to the cross and He must go there and they would murder Him. They would kill Him and execute Him and the sin of the world would be upon Him. 
And the whole word of God spoke forward to that. And when Peter looks at Jesus and says, no, Lord, he's contradicting the very word of God. And I've referenced this not too long ago, multiple times. In 1 Corinthians 15, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul, the apostle, is explaining the gospel in detail, he starts and he said, this is the gospel I preach to you. And what does he say? That Christ died, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. And does he stop there? No. Three times in the passage, he will say, according to the Scripture. According to the Scripture. According to the Scripture. Why must Jesus go to Jerusalem and die? Why must scribes put him to death, and, and, the, and the elders and the rulers of the law put him to death? Why would it happen? Why would he go to the cross? Because the Scripture said that's how it's going to happen. And if the scriptures say it, it has to happen. But he rose again. It's a profound reality. Not only that, though, what Peter whispered to his Lord in rebuke was completely contrary to the will of God. It was completely contrary to the will of God. Listen. What is Hebrews 9.22? Hebrews 9.22 says... Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I mean, it seems kind of gruesome. But the reality of the fact is that God in His holiness and in His justice has mandated that the wages of sin is death. And we kind of know that. The wages of sin is death. Wherever there's sin, there will be death. And so to interrupt that law, that spiritual law of the universe to be interrupted, means that something has to die to pay the price for this sin. So if you sin the sin, if you don't die, something else has to die because that's the only way there's a forgiveness of sin is through the shedding of blood. And ultimately, that's why the cross is so meaningful to us is because when Christ came and shed His blood for us, all right, He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We would just be dead if we died. We would pay the penalty for our sin and we would be dead, dead. That's it. I mean, eternal suffering in hell continues. But when Jesus died, he satisfied the just demands of a holy God so that my sin could be piled on Jesus. He could be executed for that, but he didn't stay dead. But the painful part of this also is when the father turns his son, turns his back on the son, S-O-N. When God turns away from God. It's incredible. And that's when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reason is, is because the sin of the world was upon Jesus and God cannot look at sin. But God was satisfied with the complete perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus as though he was the ultimate lamb from the Old Testament whose blood could flow one time and there's no longer any need for sacrifice ever again. Once Jesus did that, praise God. And that's why the cross is so meaningful. It's where a holy God and sinful man come together and where Jesus is in the middle. And that's what he's talking about. I must go do this. And so when Peter looks at Jesus and he says, no, Lord, you'll not do that. Peter is saying no to the most important thing that could ever happen for him, that Jesus would die for his sin. What Peter needed the most, he's trying to tell his Lord not to do. He doesn't get it. It was completely contrary to the will of God because the will of God was that blood would be shed 
It's why our Lord, even on the, the evening of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what the, the account there says in the Gospels? It says that he was in such agony and prayer that he sweat drops of blood. And what was his prayer? My, his prayer was, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. What cup? The cup of suffering. In his humanity, our Lord knew that difficult times were coming. And in his humanity, at his human level, there must have been some appeal for the flesh to avoid all of this pain. I think the greatest pain that our Lord went through is when his father turns his back on him, when he represents the sin of the world upon himself. But I think that's part of what the appeal is here. And this is contrary to the will of God. And it was an appeal to the flesh. Is the next bullet, an appeal to the flesh. In his humanity, somehow this appealed to him. He's hearing something that in a way he wishes he could do. Let's avoid the whole process. But the next bullet point is that this is exactly what Satan had suggested in the wilderness temptation. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4 in our Bibles and think about the fact that this voice that God hears in his ear, that he calls the voice of Satan, is a voice that he's already heard. It's in Matthew chapter 4. We'll not go through the whole count. And this is when our Lord was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. He's famished. He's frail in his flesh. He's hungry. And so imagine being starving to death in our flesh. That's exactly how the Lord would have felt. He was human. He was 100% human. He was also 100% God, so he did not give in at any level to sinning or to temptation. But he could feel the effect of human appeal and emotional appeal and pain. He could feel that effect. Like, look at verse 7. This is at the end of, of the ways that Satan tempts him. And he comes to him in a time of physical weakness. And he's pointing things out to him that he'll give him. And every time our Lord rebuts it with the word, with scripture quotes from scripture. And then in verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in a way, Peter was putting his Lord to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You can be the master of the universe. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What was he saying? He was saying, you can wear the crown, but you don't have to go to the cross. You can short circuit God's will. You can short circuit the plan here. And you can get the crown and you can, you can be the king of this whole universe here. But you don't have to go to the cross. And what does Jesus say? And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. That's enough. Get out of my ear. There's a voice in my ear that I must not listen to. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. And it says in Luke's account of this, that when the devil left him, he left him to go look for another occasion later on to hit him up again. It was evidently a common thing in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus to have some kind of a confrontation with Satan. Satan was after him continually to try to foil the plan of God. 
And so when he hears that voice, it's a scary voice in his ear, suggesting that he violate the will of God, that he violate the word of God. And he hears it in Peter's voice in his ear. And he says, and by the way, the grammatical structure of Matthew 4 and of Matthew 16, when he says to Satan in chapter 4, be gone, Satan, and get thee behind me, Satan, it's almost exactly the same structure. You could really put the same thing in both places. Get behind me. Be gone, Peter. You're the voice of Satan whispering in my ear. Wow. We also recognize the next bullet point that it would have completely short-circuited God's plan of salvation and Christ's very purpose for his ministry. Listen, there are not many options for salvation. There's only one. Only one way. It's a narrow way. It's an exclusive way. It's a way that is not well-received. But only Jesus is God and only Jesus qualified to pay the sins of the world. Only Jesus went to the cross. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And had Jesus taken Peter's advice, not only would Peter not have a Savior, but we wouldn't have a Savior. And Paul says, if this weren't so, then we would be of all men most miserable. There would be no plan of salvation. And finally, it would have been a great victory for Satan, wouldn't it? That almost goes without saying. It would have just been a great victory for Satan. Okay, let's go get some Mountain Dew and French fries, and we'll forget this whole thing. No. No, it's a voice in his ear that in his flesh must have scared him. And he said, Be gone, Satan. How do we apply this? What are some observations in conclusion? Well, first of all, I think that it's important, and I thought it was appropriate on a day when school is beginning, a week, the weeks around when school is starting, young people are heading off to high school, to college, to junior high. It matters to whom you listen. Who's whispering in your ear these days? Who's whispering in your ear? And put in my mind some of the voices that I think about in Proverbs. I like to read Proverbs, and I, and I just jotted down very quickly and looked, noticed some verses of all the different voices that can whisper in your ear. How about the voice of the forbidden woman in Proverbs chapter 5, chapter 7? The voice of the wicked man in Proverbs. The voice of the fool. Regularly it says, his lips, his mouth will be your undoing. His words... The mouth of the forbidden woman, the mouth of the wicked or perverse man, the mouth of the fool, the mouth of the godless, the voice of the liar, the voice of flattery. Who's whispering in your ears? Be interesting for you to take some time and study that out. What are the voices going on in your ear? Young people, listen. Next bullet point. You need to expect to hear even well-intentioned but misinformed voices giving misguided information. And whenever voices are whispering in your ear that are outside of the Word of God and outside of the will of God, and if they're outside the Word of God, they're always outside the will of God, that's a scary voice. I'm not talking about horror movie kind of scary voices. I'm talking about a voice that suggests to you that you don't have to do what God called you to do. It reminds me of another story that I told you before many times. I only have so many stories. Um, when I went to Bible college 
One of the vice presidents of Appalachian Bible College is a guy who impacted my life. His name is Lee Walker. He's still in ministry. He's on staff at the Great Bible Center Church in Charleston. He's their executive pastor. For about 35 years or so, Lee was on staff and faculty as executive vice president of Appalachian Bible College. And one time I was traveling with Lee in ministry, and we were at a church where we had ministered, and they kept us over, and they fed us, and they fed us a great feast, which often happened in ministry. And you still do it. You have the pastor over, and you feast him, and it's great, and it's wonderful. And traveling music teams come through, and we feed them a lot, and we give them ice cream and all kinds of things to eat. Lee Walker had a degree in business and accounting before he went to Bible college. So he was a little bit older when he went to Bible college. And he was from Cleveland, Ohio. And he went and had a degree in business. He was going to be a businessman. He was going to make lots of money. And the Lord got a hold of his heart. And the, the Lord put on his heart that he needed to go to Appalachian Bible College and, and get into ministry. And he was telling us this story at a table loaded with food. And Lee Walker's not a small man. He's... Um, um, Kind of pudgy. Um, be careful how I talk here. You could listen. I don't know. But it's just a guy who's probably always dieting, you know? And uh, he said, I walked in the room and I looked at my dad. And I said, Dad, I'm going to go to Bible college and I'm going to get in ministry. And his dad looked up at him and he said, that's a bad decision, and furthermore, you're going to starve to death if you go into ministry. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> A well-intentioned, misguided voice that never knew he was the voice of Satan in a young man's ear. It's kind of disconcerting, isn't it? How do we speak to our kids? How are we speaking to the people next to us at work? And young people, what are the voices that you have to discern that are coming into your ear? Even well-intentioned but misguided voices. Thirdly, remember that the will of God for my life is never contrary to the Word of God. The will of God for my life is never contrary to the Word of God. So what Peter spoke in his Lord's ear could not have been the will of God because it was absolutely contrary to the Word of God. And for young people heading off to school, living in a dorm, living in a new community, making new friends, you will always have a voice in your ear beckoning you to please come. It will be fun. It will happen tonight. It is just you and I. We're together. No one else will know. These voices will never end in your ear. And they're the very voice of Satan. Anything that is a voice in your ear that is contrary to the Word of God then begs you to violate the will of God for your life is nothing other than the voice of Satan. Young people, don't be beguiled by these voices. They're myriad. They will never end. Ask any old pot-bellied, gray, or bald-headed man here today and you can define who they are. And ask them if the voices still whisper in their ears. They do. They do. So you better know the Word of God so that you know the will of God so that you can recognize scary voices. Fourthly, the will of God is not always comfortable, is it? 
If ever we have a testimony of the fact that exactly what is God's will means death and suffering. It is a model for us that sometimes God calls us to do very difficult things. Pastor Everett is going to show you pictures next week of thousands of boys and girls in refugee camps that they fed the only meal they had that day. And they poured piping hot mash into their hands and they licked it out of their hands. You know, to go and minister and live and share Christ and move among people like that is very difficult, but it could be God's will for someone. It could be exactly what God wants. And so when a, when a kid looks at a parent and says, this is what God's calling me to, and you say, no, be careful, you might be a scary voice. You might be a scary voice. The will of God is not always comfortable. Saying no to your friends in the dorm, young people, saying no after a football game and going home instead of to a party is not always comfortable. But the voices that call you are the scary voices. It's okay to be uncomfortable. And then let's just drive home in conclusion that the way of the cross for salvation is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. And when Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer at the hands of these people, and I must be killed for the sins of the world, he also said, and I will rise again, praise God. You know, that's what we're going to do at the baptism in a few minutes. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did at the cross. We take people into water, and they profess Christ, and they have proclaimed the fact that they've been to the cross, and they've admitted their sinfulness, and they know Jesus Christ is their Savior from their sin. And they're going to dunk down into water, we're going to lay them into the water as a symbol of the death and then the burial of Jesus Christ. But they're not going to stay there very long. We're going to bring them right back out. Praise God, he didn't stay in the ground very long. He rose again. And in the mind of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that when we accept Christ and we've been to the cross and our sin is forgiven, that we then are identified, we are connected, we are, we are immersed in and identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as though we were there when He did it and we were in Christ. He said, we, we were buried with Him and we rose again with Him. I wasn't there. No, spiritually speaking, when you're born again and your sin is forgiven, what satisfies the justice of God is that you were in Christ when He died for you and He was buried, but then He rose again unto newness of life. That's what we're going to celebrate. That's what Jesus did. In the will of God. And Peter says, no, Lord, over my dead body. Jesus says, no, Peter, over my dead body. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. With our heads bowed for just a moment, maybe today you acknowledge that you're a sinner and in the presence of a holy God and you need a Savior. Jesus Christ took your place, paid the penalty for your sin. Here's what you have to do. You just admit your sinfulness. And then the Bible uses the word believe over and over, especially in John's gospel. He says it like 44 times. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him 
putting your faith and trust in Him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you've never done that right now in the quietness of the moment, would you do that? As though you're standing before the cross where Jesus is taking your sin upon Himself and then He's transferring down to you His righteousness. It's a transaction that takes place only by faith. And it's the only way to God. There's only one plan of salvation and it's by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. something you have to take care of before God. Father, you know our hearts and our minds this morning, and as we depart, head down to the river, hear some testimonies of faith in Christ. Would you encourage us and strengthen us? Those who speak, may it be a very memorable time for them. If there's anybody here today, Lord, who has never put their faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross for their salvation, would you please convince them of this? And show them their need for a Savior. Thank you for Peter's broken testimony this morning and our Lord's abrupt response to him. And what a reminder it is to us about scary voices. Would you help us to learn from this, to walk in obedience to your word and to live out your will, even if it's uncomfortable. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.